Hosea chapter 5 as we uh, continue in our series in the book of Hosea. Um, If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word and um, it seems long enough to remain seated. Uh, Hosea chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. But I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. O Ephraim, you shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark, upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a a moth to Ephraim, like a dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. The grass withers. The flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. Use this, your word, uh, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Um, This will come as a surprise to maybe none of you. But I'm not much of a handyman. Um, I can do some things. I'm not, I don't really like it, to be honest with you. I don't like that kind of, I just, I just don't. I mean, in part because, you know, you have to make sure you have the right stuff and then you have to be able to get to the right stuff and get it all out and have, it, it's just, it's a pain. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a huge fan. I'm really just not much of a handyman. Part of it too is like, some things probably a little more art involved than science. You know, they're a little more of an art than a science, and I think more mathematically, and so I just can't really do that art. Like drywall, for example. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's 
There's small-scale drywall and there's large-scale drywall. You know, the small-scale drywall is you decided to move your curtain rod, and so there's holes in the wall. Or a chair or a child left a dent in the wall, and so you've got to sort of hide the hole or the dent. There's large-scale drywall. You know, you put the four-by-eight sheets up, and there's a seam. You've got to deal with the seam. The tape, the mud... And then the, the nails, the screws, whatever, those leave dimples. You've got to deal with those too. Because goodness knows, if we all had you know, dimples and things in our wall just alike, that would be ridiculous. Right? So we have to patch them. We have to hide those things. So sometimes I think that's how we treat our sin. And the reality is that's in essence what Hosea 5 is talking about. There's a lot here in Hosea 5 that it's reminiscent of the way we do drywall uh, that we sort of approach our our sinfulness in the same sort of way we approach drywall work see here's the the reality is all we're doing in and when you spackle holes when you mud you know what all you're doing is hiding imperfections Right? We all just sort of agree, okay, I know there are holes and dents and, and nails and screws and things in these walls. I know there are seams in the drop. I know that. And so all we're going to do is mask them. Let's just make them go away like they're not even really there. You're sort of admitting there are imperfections and you're hiding them. That's kind of Hosea 5. That's kind of where we are right in the middle of this chapter. Much of what we do and the way we handle sin is to sort of admit that there are imperfections and then figure out how to hide them, how to mask them, how to cover them up. But the sin problem that we have and... and for the purposes of the outline, I'm using imperfections just because it carries that illustration through. But humor me, recognize it's bigger than that. Um, but the sin problem in Israel, uh, in Hosea's day, and, and the sin problem in us is bigger than a little mud, a little spackling. First, I want you to see why are the imperfections there? Why, why are they there in Hosea? So remember, we're in Israel. We're in the northern kingdom. And they are on the verge of being carried off by Assyria. Um, essentially never to exist again. Um, and, and this is years after, um, uh, years and years of, of constant perpetual rebellion. They've shaken off David and his line his kingly line there in the south in judah and notice this chapter begins with uh, an accusation god brings an accusation against the priests and against the king and against the house of israel the priests their job their function was i mean at its basic you know most sort of basic element is the right worship of God. The priest's function was to sort of make sure that the people were worshiping rightly and that not, not in sort of a police way, but to recognize that we have a sacrificial system. 
We have a temple. We have a a system that God has given us, this old covenant worship system that God has given to his people by which we are to deal with our sin. We're, we, we make sacrifices. We take a, a bull, a goat, a, a ram, an, an animal, and, and we shed its blood and we get sprinkled and the priest is sprinkling blood on you and on himself and sending a scapegoat out into the wood. There's all kinds of Things that you can read the Old Testament, you, you know that we don't need to rehash the entire Old Testament here for that. But the priest's job is the spiritual care of the people, the, the spiritual nurture of the people, the old covenant faithfulness, if you will, of the people. The, the problem, of course, is the temple is in Judah. They aren't in Judah. Hosea is writing to Israel, primarily the northern kingdom. Jerusalem is in the south. Well, that also reminds us of the accusation against the kings in verse 1. Why is the temple in the south and not in the north? Well, because it was Jeroboam I who didn't want to... Approve of the Davidic promise, right? God promised David you'll have a descendant seated on the throne forever. And so Jeroboam rebelled against God's promise, against that Davidic king. And he took the northern tribes with him and created this northern kingdom, Israel. And then, of course, he had to set up worship in a different place because We can't have people going down there to Judah, to Jerusalem, to the actual temple, lest, you know, they stay and worship God rightly. Anybody? (laughs) Um, Phil, will you go check and see what that is? Thank you. Um, And so the, the judgment is on the priests and the kings. The very people who are supposed to be leading and caring for the people. The king representing God to Israel. Leading and ruling as though God were there. Leading and ruling according to God's revealed will. The priests leading in worship. These people are leading Israel astray. You notice the language in in verse 1, a net. You have been a snare. You have been a net spread in Tabor. You have, you leaders of Israel have been set as a trap for the people. There's a charge then against the, the leaders in Israel. In other words, the imperfections exist Because the people have the wrong leaders. But the imperfections exist also because the people have the wrong helpers. Did you notice verse 13? When Ephraim saw his sickness, when Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria, to the great king. When when Ephraim realized danger, Where did he go? By the way, Ephraim is just another name for the northern kingdom. 
right? It's just Israel. There's a, several, a whole kind of host of names there. Where did he go? Well, he went to a, a pagan idolatrous ruler. Ephraim said, you know what? We need help. Let's go to Assyria and let's see if we can get them to help us. But where should she have turned? Where should she have gone? Right? Again, the, the priests and the king, the very people who were supposed to, to, to rule and govern and care for the people of Israel, modeled for them, yeah, I don't think God's going to be enough. We're going to need Assyria. I don't think God's going to be able to handle this. We're going to need, you know, a military. We're going to need a, a mighty powerful ally. God's going to be insufficient to help us. Look, if, if God has promised his care and his presence, should we be turning to the nations around us for help? If God has promised to be with his people and to guard and keep and protect his people, where will we go to find help that, you know, is stronger than omnipotent. That has more power and wisdom than omnipotent and omniscient. And so in many ways, these are warnings for the church today, aren't they? Right? We, we need to have leaders who will remain faithful to God's word. And we, Acts 17, we ought to be Berean. Look, just because there's a guy standing here saying stuff that supposedly reads Greek and Hebrew, he doesn't. Don't assume, like our job, this, in Acts 17, it's Paul, right? We, we kind of, ooh, Paul. I mean, like so much of the New Testament and look at all the stuff he did. The Bereans were checking to see that the things were so, right? Hey, Paul said this. Let me see if he's right. And they got out their Bibles and they checked. It's incumbent upon the people to check to see if it is so. The things that we hear from our leaders are according to God's word. But we also need leaders who will remain faithful. For that matter, the church doesn't look to the world for guidance, for safety, for protection, for instruction, for the things that we believe. We're called to look to God and Him alone. His Word is our only rule of faith and practice. So we see why the imperfections are there. You know, um, the thing about drywall is that the assumption is people won't notice. Now, there are people who do enough sort of drywall spackling work that they, they'll notice instantly. The reality is I can see my repair work. Well, repair. You have to put repair in quotes there. I can see my repair work better probably than you can. It'll stand out to me. And you may not quite notice as much or as quickly. Or for that matter... You might not even care. Like you don't even, you, nobody comes to my house and walks around my room and making sure that everything's. Sometimes it 
It gets under our skin. Sometimes it bugs us because we know it's not perfect, even if nobody else is going to notice, even if our company, our house guests, never even notice our work. We do that with sin. We wonder if we can hide it. Can we cover it up just enough so that nobody else will notice? Maybe nobody will pay attention. Maybe nobody will see. You know, we can hide it perhaps even from ourselves if we try hard enough and long enough. But, but there's something here, verses 3 and 4, reminds us that we can't hide it from God. In previous chapters, Israel has been described as no longer my people, right? Israel doesn't know God. And in fact, you see that right there at the end of verse four. They know not the Lord. But verse three, God says, they might not know me, but I know them. They've forgotten God. They've rejected him. But God knows Israel. God knows Ephraim. And Israel is not hidden from me. There's this picture then that we can't hide our guilt, our sin, our shame, our fig leaves from God. Who knows us completely and perfectly. In fact, the writer of Hebrews picks up on that in Hebrews 4.13, right? When he says, um, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The King James, with whom we have to do. Notice the descriptions in verses 3 through 7 of Israel's guilt and shame. God knows God knows the imperfections are there. First, he, he knows our sin and our sinful condition. You, you ever hear the question, do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin? Some of you have an answer in your head right now. Well, that's kind of going on in these verses, right? Because notice the description in verses in verse four, for example. Their deeds do not permit them to return to God. Or verse 3, Ephraim has played the whore. There's a description then that Israel has done that which is sinful. She's pursued other lovers. She's pursued other providers, other husbands. She's given herself to false gods. Israel as a nation is an adulterer because she's supposed to be married to God, married to Yahweh. And she has instead given herself, and, and you can go read First and Second Kings, you can go read earlier in Hosea, she has given herself to worshiping Baal, which is spiritual adultery. That's the, the language here. It brings that, that marriage metaphor back into Hosea, even though Hosea and Gomer are no longer on the stage. But she's guilty of actual sins of rebelling against God of chasing after false of uh, false gods for chasing after idols for pursuing the worship of of other so-called would-be deities but notice verse 4 she's guilty of actual of actually committing actual sin because 
She has a sinful condition. The spirit of whoredom is within them. In other words, the people were led astray by the kings and the priests precisely in part because they were willing to go there. Their own sinful condition said, well, I'm happy to follow you towards this Baal worship, towards these false gods, because my heart is already given to that anyway. Right? Jesus said what comes out of the mouth makes us unclean, not what goes into our mouth. Because what comes out of our mouth comes from our heart. The reality is we are, we are sinners. Not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. John Calvin even described the human heart as a perpetual factory of idols. We're happy to create whatever it is we want to worship. Ourselves, our money, our possessions, our family, our friends, our job, our status. Whatever it might be in place of God. So they went. They're guilty of actual sins precisely because they have a sinful condition. They went exactly where they wanted to go. Let me ask you this. When your sin is discovered... When your sin is sort of exposed and found out, what's your reaction? Like, how, how do we respond? What are the things that we do? Um, do, you, do? How do you respond when you sort of realize your guilt? Do you, do you look for fig leaves? I don't mean actual fig. I don't mean go out in your yard and find fig leaves. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden. At the end of... Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are naked and without shame. And the first thing that happens after they eat the forbidden fruit is they try to figure out how to make clothes. They grab leaves and cover themselves up. That wasn't really merely a physical modesty issue. That was a, a recognition of their spiritual exposure, of their spiritual condition, their trying to figure out how to cover themselves, how to hide in the bushes and, and so that other people won't know. Oh no, now they see me for who I really am. They see my guilt, my shame, and I've got to hide and cover that up. Don't we do the same thing? Aren't we kind of quick to find some sort of fig leaf to hide behind, to, to mask, to cover our guilt, our shame, so that people can't see it? Aren't we quick to sort of soothe our guilt with a little bit of drywall mud, a little bit of spackling to hide our guilt, to appease our conscience? So God knows the imperfections that are there because he knows our sin and our sinful condition but he also knows our fig leaves he knows our efforts to to cover up our sinfulness from others look at verses five and six israel tried to take animals to sacrifice verse six They were going through religious motions. Now you realize they worship Baal and all that comes with that. 
But they're trying to either add God to the mix and sort of blend the two, or they're kind of bouncing back and forth and treating Baal worship and Yahweh worship as though both are equally valid. And there's this sense in which, oh, wait, I'm guilty. I've got to go offer a sacrifice, make God happy, and then I can go back about my business. It seems that people were leading their animals to go sacrifice their animals as a way to merely jump through sort of an old covenant hoop to satisfy God's anger, to make him happy. But it's merely a fig leaf. It's merely a way to sort of do something that sounds good and right and religious, but is merely external and is not from the heart. Are we ever guilty of that? Treat Yahweh like like any other false god. Like if you just go and make your offering and do the thing that you have to do to appease him, um, then everything will be fine. We basically treat even worship, even good, right, religious things as sort of a rabbit's foot or a, um, a magic incantation, right? I mean, you think of the times when, when your sin finds you out and you think, I'm going to start reading my Bible now. You better believe I'm not going to miss church Sunday. I might even stay for Sunday school. Like we, we look for, should we do all of those things? Yeah, absolutely we should be doing all those things. But as a means to just appease God, to merely sort of jump through a hoop and cover up our guilt and shame, that's not the point at all. Sometimes we just try to spackle over our guilt, our sin, our shame, in hopes of hiding it from others, even trying to hide it from God. But thankfully... There's nobody coming around my house and examining my spackle jobs, right? None of you in the times you've been in my home have ever walked up to me and said, Jeff, now you're gonna. See, now I can't have any of y'all over again because you're gonna. This is going to be a problem. I just created an issue. None of you is going to go there. You see that hole up there? You haven't patched that one yet. Yeah, I know. See that one? See that patch job? Yeah, you could have gotten it flatter. You could have gotten it smoother. Could have blended it in a little better. Right? There's nobody literally coming around and judging how well we do in patching the holes in our house. There's, there's no judge for that. There's no, okay, I guess when you go to sell your house, it might matter and you may have to do something about it. But But in terms of our sin... There is judgment. There is, a, there is a day when sin is judged in the end of days. And there's this picture at the end of chapter 5 in verse 14, for example. God describes himself like a lion swooping in to kill. Swoop. That's probably not the right. That would be a, an eagle. A, a, you know, a lion racing in to capture kill, tear, destroy, and eat. Notice the emphasis, verse 14. I will be like a lion. I, even I, will tear 
and go away. And it's literally the same Hebrew word back to back. I, I. Um, to create that sort of emphasis. I will carry off. God's look, I am the judge. I'm the one who's going to come in like a... And you think, well, I'm pretty sure Assyria is the one that does that. Of course, Assyria was God's means of judging the northern kingdom. There's this picture then. As one writer put it, it's hopeless to turn to human help to save what God has determined to demolish. Israel is facing God coming like a a lion to destroy. Carry off the carcass. You know, there's no rescue from that, right? I mean, you do realize that when a when a lion captures its prey, there is no that thing gets torn. Like there's no way that animal's coming back to life. That that's kind of it. That's the picture of of finality, of destruction, of demolition. And for Israel, that's coming not long after Hosea's time. Assyria will come and, and carry the northern kingdom off and it will cease to exist. They're judged and punished for their constant perpetual sin and rebellion. I don't know why that couldn't be true for nations, for churches, for denominations today. Places where... God's people have seen his glory and tasted of his goodness and but who have forsaken their love for him and pursued the safety and protection of the world around us of of others, whatever the case may be. But there is a final judgment for sinful imperfections, for the guilt and sin and shame. And what a lion destroys is ripped to pieces. Maybe you're thinking that that kind of sounds harsh. Like maybe your sort of gut reaction is, I mean, A, that's Old Testament and B, that doesn't sound like a God who is love. That doesn't sound like a loving God to me. But it, but did you notice verse 12? God in verse 14 is a lion. In verse 12, he is a moth and he is dry rot. What do moth and dry rot do to stuff? Destroys it. Not quite so quickly as a lion, mind you. I have a sweater that a moth has gotten hold of. I still wear it because I can hide it. I can hide that little hole. Moths destroy, dry rot destroys, but slowly. In other words, there's a picture here. We can argue that verse 14 sounds fast and harsh and impatient. But keep in mind, we are a couple hundred years since Baal worship began in Israel. Because verse 12 is a picture of a patient and loving God. Yes, God will destroy, but he is indeed patient 
and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In fact, look at verse 15. That animal that got destroyed by the lion, you know, when a lion swoops, runs in, kills, carries off, destroys, tears apart, suddenly has a chance at life. I'll return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. It's almost as if, verse 15, the lion has suddenly become a lamb. Unable to kill, unable to destroy. It ran in and attacked whatever. And yet there is patience. God says there is a day when they will acknowledge their guilt. When in their distress, they will seek me earnestly. They will turn to Christ seeking his Forgiveness. In other words, God gives a time for repentance, for turning from sin, for, for, for turning to Jesus and seeking that restoration. I mean, isn't that what Christ accomplished? Isn't that exactly what Christ did on the cross? Wasn't he torn so that we might be set free? Wasn't he demolished so that we might live? The reality is Christ came into the world to atone for our sin, to pay our debt. To be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's no, there's no drywall mud. There's no spackling to kind of cover up our sin, to hide it. There's only the blood of Jesus. That alone is our hope and our joy and our confidence. Only the blood of Christ can cover our guilt and our shame. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ, that there is uh, hope and uh, security in and redemption in Christ, that we, that you're patient, that you're abounding in steadfast love, uh, that there is a time and place for repentance. We pray that you would make us people who uh, seek your care and love and protection and uh, not the help of the world around us. Uh, would you make us people who uh, look to you, to your word for our, our only rule of faith and practice? And would you make us people who run to the blood of Christ rather than to our own drywall mud to hide and cover our shame and our guilt? May it truly be that our faith looks to you, Lord Jesus. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.